Well, one of the things that uh, I'm very thankful for today is that God is sovereign and puts us into the Word just at the most opportune moment. As you know, in our church, uh, we go through books of the Bible. Um, and so we're not driven by cultural issues or hot topics per se. We will address them as they arise, but we don't let that determine our preaching calendar. Uh, our goal is to understand God's heart for His historical redemptive plan. And so we understand sections of the Bible, books of the Bible, passages of the Bible. And that's how we teach the Bible. And we understand who God is and what He's up to. We think in that way we best can understand the culture as well as things arise. And so when, when difficult things happen in our church, I always find it amazing how God puts us just where He needs us in His book. Now in seminary they teach you this, that when you start a message, when you begin a sermon, you need to try to make sure the people are connected to your point. And so they ask you to, or they encourage you to build a bridge. So talk about something they know, Make your introduction kind of man-pointed uh, or human-centered in a good way. That's good advice, by the way. Get, get them on board where you are. But I don't need to do that today because all of you know what it's like to be in hard situations, difficult trials. All of you know what it's like to be there and have to wait for vindication. That's what we're talking about today. And I, I could think of... No better text possibly than this one today, especially in light of the Hensel situation last Saturday. We spent Sunday talking about it. You're well aware of it if you're in our church at all. One of our own partners in Jamaica was murdered last Saturday. We've been dealing with that this week and walking with that family. But you know, I was thinking this week, this is not at all to, to minimize Sarah and her family's suffering, not at all in that way, but... Uh, this past week, I know uh, Elaine Morris has been dealing with cancer for a long time. And Bob, her husband, found out he had to have open-heart surgery on Friday. He's been taking her to Ames for treatment three times a week. He's her driver. They're an older couple. He finds out he's got open-heart surgery on Friday. So they're dealing with that whole issue, one with cancer, the other now with an open-heart surgery. And he came through well on Friday. Uh, others of you have lost parents. Some lost parents as recently as last week, others a few months ago. So, so can we just be honest here? No one in this room is immune to the darker side of life at times and having to figure out when will this end. James addresses that in chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Open your Bibles there, would you? And let's today be encouraged as we see this, this call to patience that James gives us. But it's not just a call to patience for patience' sake. It's a call to patience for something far greater than just our own vindication. There's a beautiful reward when we pursue patience. We're going to kind of unpack that today and see what it is. And so today I bring you a message called The Beautiful Reward of Pursuing Patience from these five verses in James chapter 5. I'd like to read the text as one unit. We'll kind of go into our lab, examine the text, break it down, see exactly what James is saying to us historically, textually, culturally, so to speak. Uh, then we'll take some questions. So if you have some, feel free to text them in. We'll answer those best we can. 
Ideally, if they're specific and about the text, those are my favorite kind. If they're kind of take a long answer and they're kind of like cultural, it can take a little longer. I might pass on it and just say I'll address it in my blog. But we want to be sure open to your questions and then we'll end with kind of a, a final application of this text, all right? Let's read together James 5, 7 through 11 and this call to patience. Verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers. And I know that we make a big deal about therefores often, but I think that's appropriate and it's uh, textually accurate to know that's why the author put this in here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's looking back to verses 1 through 6 and the oppression that the believers were experiencing, those dispersed Jews, the, the, the oppression they were experiencing and, and the sense like, man, when will this ever end? He says to that exact situation, he says, be patient, say it with me, therefore. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's go into our lab, can we? I want us to see a couple of things here in a bigger way. Then I want to kind of break out some of these verses and words and make sure you kind of get them. So I'll kind of focus this in pretty good for you there. I do this in... One reason is because I want you to kind of see how I study my Bible and how I use that to kind of understand the flow of the text. But also, it might be a way just for you to kind of watch and learn. I'm not sure how often all of you read your Bible. I hope it's every day. I'm not sure if you mark in it. I would encourage you to make a mess of your Bible. Mark in it. Do all you can to make sure that, that you're understanding what's happening. So here's what he's doing in this text, okay? Let's first of all notice a couple of larger things. I think he's given us exhortations toward patience, or you could even say just just one general exhortation towards patience. And then he's going to give us examples of patience, all right? Let's circle those first, can we? I think 7, 8, and 9 are really kind of uh, where he talks about the exhortation to patience. So you might want to just square those up, circle those. 10 and 11 are where he really discusses examples of patience. Now, notice something. One of your Bibles will have verse 12 kind of before this little break here. Do you see that? And some of you may wonder, why aren't we going to verse 12? I see verse 12 as kind of a bridge verse, all right? I'm 51-49 on this deal. This is an open-handed opinion matter, so I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about it because I enjoy it mainly. But um, verse 12, you see the phrase, but above all? That seems like kind of a summary transition kind of phrase, doesn't it? Okay, he's going to end the book, talk about some primary things, like when Paul would often say, finally... And yet, if you look at verse 12, there's things in here about condemnation, which could go back up here to the idea of being judged. He's talking about speaking or swearing, and he spoke here of prophets who spoke. 
And, and so it could fit in the previous verses. However, he may actually be saying that above all, have a, a culture of, of prayer. He kind of discusses that 13 through about 18. We don't pursue God's agenda by making oaths and swearing on things we think will bring those to pass. We just become a people of prayer. Does that make sense? So I could see this verse really fitting in the ones before it, or I could see it fitting in the ones after it. So I call it a bridge verse. We've elected as a teaching team to simply put it in the next section. We feel like it probably best fits there. Again, 5149. Uh, So we're going to cover 7 through 11, which I think are best explained by these two overall headings. The exhortation towards patience, 7, 8, and 9, and then the examples of patience, 10, 11. Now, there's something here, what he does. He mentions patience quite often in the first three verses. You see it? He says, be patient in verse 7. He says, the farmer is awaiting. You might want to circle that. He's being what? Patient about it. And then he says in verse 8, you also be patient. The word also meaning be like a farmer and wait and be patient. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. So I think three things happen in these three verses. First of all, I think he defines patience. I think then he gives us its motivation. So you might say this. He gives us its definition. He gives us its motivation and he gives us its demonstration or you might say how it's displayed. All right? Let's notice this. He mentions patience one, two, three times specifically. I think he mentions it a fourth time with the word wait. What does this word mean? Now, let me, let me show you a difference here. I'm going to skip down to verse uh, 11. Do you see the word steadfast mentioned twice? This is the normal word for patience. It's the, it's the two words remain under. But this is not the word, steadfast is not the word used here for patient in verses 7 and 8. Steadfast is used in chapter 1. It's the same word for perseverance. It's typically what James uses to talk about remaining under a trial. Don't try to squirm your way out or be quick to escape. Remain under. But here he actually introduces somewhat of a new word in some sense by saying, Remaining under is being patient. What does he mean when he says be patient three times as well as the word wait? It's the combination of two words. Macro, meaning large or long, as opposed to what? Micro, right. So macro, and then the word, when we get our word thermos, meaning you hold something for a long time and it keeps it warm, keeps it hot. So you might could say Macrothumia is, is generally the word for patience, and he means by that to have a long or large temperament. Like if you have a thermos, you put something in it, you expect it to stay that temperature for a what? Long time. Now don't think hot-tempered, or excuse me, don't think long-tempered like you're getting mad and angry. Think as in demeanor or temperament. You with me? The word patience here, mentioned three times, and I think even alluded to with the word wait, means to have a long-tempered demeanor. I said for years that we should have long-distance eyes. We should have the kind of of, um, disposition that sees the larger picture. Not one that expects an overnight remedy, a quick fix, or a mentality that says, you know what, in 30 minutes, my sitcom will be resolved. 
Now, James here is calling for something quite different. The definition is to be long-tempered, a demeanor that is long-distance in nature. You see life from the larger picture. Now, the motivation for this, I think, is mentioned in two phrases. You ought to connect them in your Bible. The coming of the Lord mentioned in verse 7 and the coming of the Lord mentioned in verse 8. In fact, the one in verse 8 even modifies to a greater degree the one in verse 7. You see verse 7? It simply says the coming of the Lord or the appearing, the parousia of the Lord. But at verse 8, he says the coming of the Lord is what? Say it with me. At hand or near. So do you think James thought he was in the time frame of Christ's return? What do you think? It's okay if you say yes or no. You have just an opinion here. I think he did. I think that not only because of this phrase at hand, but if you recall, Peter said to those at Pentecost that what you're witnessing when the tongues broke out on the people and 3,000 were saved, the gospels proclaimed, and Christ is clearly seen as the Savior of mankind and the Son of God and the Son of David. Peter said, this is what Joel prophesied, that in the last days this would happen. So I believe from the days of Pentecost all the way to now, we're in the last days. So what does that mean? That Christ's coming is at hand or near. James just simply echoes this. And this is the motivation for being patient. Now catch this, church. James in no way calls for us to be patient because there's some uh, you know, great reward in just seeing yourself as like long tempered like well that's just a good trait to have and can you kind of get that going can you develop it no he says we should have a long tempered view our demeanor should be one that really has a long distance perspective about it because christ is coming the point being this that's when true vindication occurs so if you're in the darker side of life if you're on that side of the mountain where it doesn't seem like the sun is shining at all There's a day coming when the sun will shine on you, S-O-N. And by that, we could mean a number of things. It may be that your illness will ultimately and finally be healed then. It may mean that the separation between you and a parent, you and a child that's happened through death, will no longer be separation. There's a number of things that that this, this vindication refers to. But I need you to hear this very well. None of that will be perfectly seen until the coming of the Lord. Church, I need you to hear this. That means at best, listen, listen very carefully. At best, we grieve with hope. You see, any theologian or pastor would tell you that there's no grieving in life is lying to you. Life contains grief. Death, even pain in relationships, financial downturns, unexpected trials, marriages that go awry, Children that go astray. You're thinking right now of the one in your life, aren't you? 
Maybe you're saying, well, I'm not in a really bad one right now. Well, just wait your turn. (laughs) Grief, heartache, and pain is part of the natural human condition brought about by sin. At best, we deal with that and we cope biblically and spiritually. So I'm not minimizing, and I'll use this phrase, if you're a counselor, forgive me, hope I'm okay with this. I'm not minimizing the coping mechanism, all right? The biblical aspect of of getting through life with God's spirit. But the final, ultimate resolution for all of the injustice, the illness, the separation, the death, fill in the blank. The final resolution will not occur until when? The coming of the Lord. That's why we're to be patient until then. Because that's when everything is settled. And I suspect some of you are probably like me. You would love to see some resolution and vindication sooner, wouldn't you? Can we just be honest? Something happens at work. You're like, man, I hope the Lord fixes that by tomorrow morning. (laughs) You think that when you're driving. I hope the Lord takes care of your car in the next 10 seconds. I was at the airport in Orlando two weeks ago at a conference. I took Julie with me, and we're standing in line for the rental car. And I I just got such uh, a sinful um, uh, inability to wait sometimes. And man, my pride creeps up and gets hold of my neck and strangles me at the oddest times. I'm standing in line. The service at the counter was, was awful. We chose kind of a cheaper car rental company. I never heard of it, but it was a really good deal. On Priceline, I'm like, this will be great, you know? 35, 40 minutes. I'm just, there's just two folks in line, but I'm just, we're just waiting. And Julie can sense, like, this is not going to go well if you get to the counter, is it? And so, I get, and so by the time I go up, a, a lady kind of scoots in from the side and just kind of what appears to me to be kind of jump in line. And, and so when I walked up, I said, ma'am, excuse me, but I think I was next in line. And the guy says, no, she had been waiting already. She forgot some stuff. And so she went to get it and she's back now. To which I promptly said something I probably shouldn't tell you what I said as your pastor, right? <laughs> no, actually I said, well, her forgetfulness is not my issue. And I said, the service here just really isn't that good. <laughs> and Julie's in the back. Julie's like, I wish he would not speak sometimes, you know. <laughs> the minute I said that, I'm like, now why did I just sin like that? Why did I say that? You know, that's a terrible testimony. There's no patience. Was it truthful? Yeah, but you know what? Uh, the truth in that matter didn't solve anything because the counter agent just decided to, to dig his heels in and lock down. He says, sir, you can step back. And so I just took a step back. He says, no, I mean back to the line because you're in her personal space. So I said, no problem. So I stepped back, and I'm thinking to myself, that's amazing in our culture. We're getting to the place where you can go in any bathroom you want based on what you feel your gender is, but you can't be in someone's personal space at a counter with all your clothes on. Like, that's just odd to me, you know? I'm having all these theological questions. I'm wanting to engage in a debate. And Julie says, you know, that was rude of you. I'm like, the Holy Spirit speaking to me now. I've got all kind of conviction, you know. So I, and I, I know you're laughing, but the truth is that wasn't right. I should have just done that a better way. That's what I'm saying. We, we want resolution quickly, don't we? Am I the only guy in that boat? No. I agree with that little kid just spoke up. He's right. 
We all sometimes let pride get to us, and we don't want to wait to get our way. And I want to confess to you, that was sin, and it's sin when you do it. Is there a right way to go about something like that? Yes, I didn't take that right way. I was seeking embarrassment. I was trying to, um, you know, prove points. And I remember at the hotel later, I told Julie, I said, man, James is all over me right now. Be patient. And my point is, in small things and little things, we must trust the Holy Spirit to, to give us a long-tempered view, to build in us patience that is motivated by the coming of the Lord. He lastly talks about the display of this. Look what he says. The, the first thing he says in verse 9 then is, do not grumble against one another. I think it's very interesting that again in this passage, James goes right to our lips as one of the first signs that we're truly understanding God's perspective. One of the first signs that our theology is getting all the way down to our feet is always seen first in our words. And at that moment in the airport, I did not believe what I thought I believed. My lips proved it. By the way, if you see this phrase, do not grumble against one another, you might want to draw a line back over to, over in this area. I mean, I can see it all in my Bible. As well as, back over here to chapter 4, because in both 4.11 and 4.1, he talks about speaking and quarreling and fighting against each other. Here he says, trust the Lord, his ultimate resolution and vindication it will help you not speak against other people. The phrase one another probably means other believers, no doubt. And I think that the sense here, if you read chapter 4, verse 11, chapter 4, verse 1, the sense is that if, if God doesn't seem to be resolving your issue on your timetable, don't take His place and assume you're the final authority. As in 4.11, like you're the judge who gives the law. No, you're not. I'm not. Instead, we should understand our rightful place. The true judge is standing at the door. At the door, by the way, would be a very good phrase to circle. And it goes back to the idea of being at hand. Do you see that in verse 8? The idea of imminence and, cl- and proximity being close. And so, here's what James is saying. Understand that, that God's return is very close. He'll resolve everything at that point ultimately. So let that affect how you speak. And don't assume that you're the final authority and can put everyone in their eventual and final place. That's God's job. He's the judge. So here's the exhortation towards patience. It's definition. I think it's motivation as well as it's demonstration. Let me pause here just for a moment and say a word about the coming of the Lord. Because it really is what's driving this call to patience. Now listen very carefully. As a church, we believe that the return of the Lord is imminent. What that means is there's nothing yet prophetically to happen for Christ to return. In a picture form, you could see it like this, that the Son is waiting for the Father to simply give the word. And then He would return for His bride. That's what we're waiting on. There's nothing yet left to happen prophetically. Now, why do I tell you that? Why do I speak to you about the imminence of Christ's return? Because there are some out there, and, and they would be good 
Christians, they're, they're good people. They're, they're not heretical or off on things that matter. But there's some who would say to you that they don't believe that Christ's return is imminent, that there are certain things still left to happen. One of them is this. There's some who are saying that all the nations must hear the gospel before Christ can return. In fact, I've even said that at times. That, you know, we've got to get the gospel to every nation and then the end. But if you'll read that passage in Matthew 24, 14, I don't think he's referring to, to the parousia that James is talking about. This is why I think a good, correct understanding of Acts affects your eschatology. In fact, I told our elders one time, our theology affects our eschatology. Understanding that in Acts, you see the completion of verse 8 in chapter 1. The gospel going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. God getting the gospel to the known world. So there's nothing left yet to happen for Christ to return. Now watch this. On the heels of that, should we then say, well, it doesn't matter what's happening in areas where there's very little gospel influence? Should we not be concerned if there's places where there's very little access to the gospel? I would say quite the contrary. The fact that Christ's return could happen any moment should propel and compel us to good, wholesome, biblical strategy about missions. Amen? But we're not driven to that strategy by some idea that we hold the key to Christ's return. And if we could finally get to the 6,600 plus groups that are termed by man as unreached based on their percentages. If we get to that point, then finally Christ could come. We don't hold that power, church. The Father alone, the Scriptures say, will give the word to the Son. He will return and He'll gather His people. Till that moment, till that second, till that trumpet sounds, we should be about spreading the gospel, making disciples, okay? Just make sure your motivation's in the right place and your theology is correct so that you understand the end times as best as possible. Speaking of this, next week we're having one of our timeouts and we're going to talk about the coming of the Lord from a general topical sense. And we'll explain more about this. What is the coming of Christ and some things about it. I would just say in this message, this seems to say, these two phrases that James mentioned, it's at hand, he's at the door. He is in line with the apostles, the New Testament writers, even Christ himself, that Christ's return is imminent. It's the next thing to happen. And by the way, that should bring a smile to your face. That means ultimate, final resolution could be today. Isn't that, that's splendid. Even in the middle of your pain, in, my, in the middle of everything that's not right, the hope that Christ could come today. Man, that causes us to be patient. Do you see why now John would say in his final letter, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha! It is totally biblical and right for you to pray. Lord, come quickly. It's not selfish. It's not short-sighted. It's biblical and right to long for the ultimate justice that Jesus will bring when he comes. Here's our exhortation towards patience. It's followed by some examples of patience. Can we circle the two that are mentioned? Can you do this with me? The first one is what? The prophets. Do you see that? They spoke in the name of the Lord. 
Next we have Job, and interestingly, Job was one who said very little, didn't he? If you read his book. So I kind of call this the examples of speakers and stayers. Job, Job just stayed under his trial. He didn't talk at all. In fact, the Bible actually records this, that Job never sinned with his lips. Now we know that he had a long conversation with God at some point. But in those initial days, he said very little to his friends or to his wife, just a few things. He's an example of someone who is patient as well as the prophets. Now here, of course, patience is mentioned in verse 10. You see that? Same as in verse 7 and 8. But then the tone changes and suddenly these examples of suffering and patience, the prophets and Job, they're looked at as people who remain steadfast. Again, steadfastness. It's the word to remain under. This is a different word than the word patient in verse 7. I'm not sure how to explain this. I mean, they have synonymous concepts, but one is probably describing what we do. We're remaining under. We're not leaving the trial. We're not trying to find a quick way out. We're not blaming God. We're not trying to run away. The patience may describe more of, of what's internal driving that. So one may be an action. One may be an attitude. Does that make sense? But they're both describing this, this, this demeanor that because we know Christ is coming, we'll have a long-distance view and we'll stay under the trial even though it is unjust. Remember, this goes back to verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. So here's the examples of suffering. I want you to notice something that I think is just beautiful. He, he, he says the, the, the examples are horizontal in their view. I want you to catch that phrase. So Job and the prophets... We consider them blessed. You see that word? And the word consider is to look at something. So we consider them blessed. When you look horizontally at those who have suffered, who've endured, who've been patient, we say, wow, that's, they're blessed. It refers to James 1.12. You might could jot that in the margin. James 1.12. When, when Jesus, uh, James writes that that man who endures is blessed. But here's what he does. Even though it's horizontal in, their, in our view, who we see, as far as examples, he says that what we see vertically is more important. Because watch this. He says, you've heard of Job's steadfastness. You've seen the prophets. And then he says here, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, I think that's so odd that James would do that. I think if James is giving examples, you would say, you've seen Job, you've seen the prophets, and look what happened to Job and the prophets. But he doesn't. What does he do? He says, you've seen Job, you've seen the prophets, look how gracious God is. Now watch this church, listen very carefully. The tendency is, as God's people, to think if vindication is the ultimate um, event at Christ's return. If that's when that happens, then I long for that, and that's good, but watch this. That is secondary. Primary is God's glorification. So when He comes, as good as it will be, that there will be no more tears, no more death, justice will be served. Guess what? That will not take center stage. You know what, what will? Christ will be seen as the all in all, the ruler, the supreme sovereign authority. His glory, his character will be even 
more fully displayed. What kind of character? His compassion, his mercy. This verse leans into 2 Peter 3, 9. You might want to jot that in here, 2 Peter 3, 9. Because that verse says this, that the reason God is long-suffering and waiting is because he wants all to repent and be saved. When he finally comes, people will, will see, yes, the judge has come, he's at the door, he's now ready to deliver final resolution, but guess what? The fact that he's waited this long, and been this long-suffering, he must be merciful and gracious. So I want to say to you, with the examples clearly in view horizontally, that vindication is not our ultimate goal in Christ's coming. It's a secondary aspect. The most beautiful aspect is God's glorification. And this is the beautiful reward of those who are patient. Is that Christ's character will be most clearly on display. The treasure of all that he is. The treasure of all that he has done. Will be fully on display clearly visible. People will see God in all of His majestic compassion, mercy. That's what will happen when He comes because that's what He's been working in these examples. He's showing in a smaller scale just how compassionate and mercy He is. So you be patient as well because when He comes, that will be even more visible. Isn't it exciting and humbling to know that at Christ's coming, yes, you and I will be vindicated, but God will be glorified. And that is your greatest reward, church. You see, that takes us away from self-directed man-made religion to God-glorifying, Christ-centered, gospel-driven theology to where even when Christ comes, it's really not about you. Are there aspects of that that are glorious? Yes. But the ultimate beautiful reward of pursuing patience is that Christ will be seen in all of his mercy and compassion. And what could we want more for the world than to see Christ more clearly? So James drives at us with the exhortation towards patience and then this, these examples of patience. Before I show you where this leads in a single sentence, let me see if there's any questions that have come in. None today? All right. So where do, where do these thoughts lead us? Here's our take-home truth today. Let's grab hold of this for a bit, can we? Say a few words about it, and then we'll close our service with some songs and communion. Here's what I think is a, a good handle for these verses. Patience is pursued best when the Lord's return frames our perspective. Notice I use active words here. Patience is something we pursue. We must be like the farmer mentioned here, right? By the way, farmers are the hardest working people I know, and yet they're the most patient people I know. Now, I've never met a farmer that said, well, I'll just hope the seed gets out there and we'll see if the ground gets tilled up. And Now, a farmer thinks that about the rain. He can't control the weather. And so he, has this in, he or she has this incredible type of attitude about the weather, and yet they're working the fields, aren't they? 
This is what the point of this passage is as well, that patience is something we pursue, and yet it's something that actually we have to be willing to just kind of, um, it's, 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 way, it's pursuing a waiting kind of lifestyle, a long-tempered demeanor. And so we pursue patience best when, when the Lord's return frames our perspective. That's when the harvest will occur. That's the reaping we're waiting on, is the Lord's return. For then and only then will all be settled by our righteous judge. So here's what I would say to you even in a more succinct fashion. You ready? Live like a spiritual farmer. And when is harvest time? It's when the Lord returns. And when could the Lord return? Right now. In 10 minutes, in 30 minutes, tomorrow, next year, he could return in a thousand years. But you rest assured, Jesus is coming. And he's actually close. So don't give up, don't let go. You hold on to the faithful word. You remain under and be patient. Establish your hearts. Strengthen the the inner root system and live like a spiritual farmer. Let's work the fields. Let's sow the seed. But let's be willing to wait for God to reap the harvest. Does that make sense, guys? Perhaps this illustration will bring some more understanding to it. It's a little bit of a mixed metaphor, but work with me on it, okay? I was talking to Ed Gregory this past week. He just mentioned this story to me in passing, but it fits so perfectly. I said, can I share this? He said, sure. It's about a friend of his named Dan Cox. Excuse me, Gary Cox. I don't know Gary. Ed does. They apparently knew each other from Alaska when Ed was a pastor there. Gary and his son liked to hike, and so when they were hiking Mount McKinley, they were at a place where they were walking the knife. Now, if you're a climber or a hiker, maybe you know what that means. I didn't know what that meant, but I could picture in my head what he's talking about. As you uh, ascent the mountain and you near the peak, things get narrow, and there's certain places where you, at least it looks like you're, just, you're balancing your walk on a razor-thin part of the mountain. And so they call that walking the knife. And so... Gary and his son were doing that one day, and they teach you that as you're tethered together and you're roped, that if one falls off, the other one should jump the other way. The tension will then hold you, and hopefully you both won't die, assuming all the equipment works. Well, Gary and his son are walking the knife on Mount McKinley, and Gary's son slips and falls off the mountain. And immediately, Gary jumps willingly and volitionally off the other side. There's a few milliseconds of suspense and then the ropes grab. And somewhere on this side of the mountain, the son realizes, I'm not falling, but I don't know what else is going on. He's sure that his father on the other side is at least what's caused the tension in the rope, but he's not sure if his father's alive. He doesn't know anything. So the son kind of gets his feet into place, kind of gets some kind of security 
thinking I've somehow got to get back up. All of a sudden the rope goes, uh, gets loose and there's lag in it. The son is glad he's got his feet in position because he's like, what does this mean? Did the rope give way on my dad's side? Is the equipment faulty? And then he hears, and Gary's son told them later, he said, I knew at that point my dad was coming. His dad climbs to the top, and to whatever extent this happened, he looks over and helps his son, and he said that we both got back to the knife part of the mountain, and we sat there for multiple minutes and never said a word. He said, uh, a while later, even in their silence, uh, someone else was coming near. They shared that story, and this old hiker, from what Ed tells me, looked at the boy and said, son, your father just saved your life. As I heard that story, I began to think about what life must feel like for some of us at different times when you feel like you've fallen off the side of the mountain. But what has happened to you, Jesus did and embraced on purpose. He jumped. He became one of us with all of our limitations with all of our, 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 our frailties, he embraced the human experience and he took the leap and in doing so, he brought tension to the rope. And you may think, man, I'm hanging by a thread today. I don't know if I'm going to live or die. Listen real close, listen. And your rope may feel like there's a lag in it, but listen, can you hear it? He's coming. He's not forgotten you. And he'll come and he'll rescue us and save us. This is the glorious thing about the coming of Christ. In our darkest time, we're called to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Did you know this is the very doctrine that, that Jesus taught his disciples when he said, partake communion, observe it whenever you meet. I won't drink of this with you again till I do so in my Father's kingdom. He's talking about the eschaton, the last time. Paul even said we're to do this and we're to proclaim Christ's death until he comes. So today, as we partake of communion, remember, we're not doing this in the middle of some vacuum or on the dark side of the mountain thinking, well, all hope is gone. No, if you'll listen close, if you'll watch, guess what? You'll hear it. He's coming. And that's reason to celebrate church. Yes, your vindication is just around the corner. But more importantly, so is God's fullest glorification. And His great mercy and compassion will be seen so beautifully. So will you stand with me this morning? And will you celebrate communion by remembering his death and his return? All of us standing for a few moments. The band's going to join me. I know normally we kind of enter this with some of a somber, reflective mood. But this morning, I'm going to ask you to posture yourself somewhat differently. In light of the fact that Christ is coming, that his return is at hand, his coming is close, we're going to remember to do what he asked us to do until he comes. And we're going to celebrate Christ's finished work for us. 
And we're going to take the bread and the juice, but we're not going to take it in a manner that, that, that's like, well, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Yes, there is pain. You may feel like you're walking the knife, but guess what? We're going to proclaim Christ's finished work until he comes, and we're going to celebrate his victory, and we're going to wait with patience for his coming. So I'm going to invite you. Lights will be full up. The band's going to play a full song. Come get the elements with a spirit of, 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 of celebration and contemplation. Come back to your seats. Hold on to them. I wouldn't encourage you to clap a little bit. You may have a spillage on your hand, okay? But just think and worship and sing with us about Christ's coming. I'll come back and lead you through celebrating communion, and we'll sing one final song about Christ's return, okay?